What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, I'm Catherine Philp, Diplomatic Correspondent at The Times. Welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here with Tim Marshall, journalist and author of Divided, Why We're Living in an Age of Walls. Tim, welcome. Thank you. An age of walls. I had a look at some statistics on this. It turns out that at the end of World War II, there were 15 walls. Mm. There are now 77. Mm. And the vast majority have gone up since 9-11. Can you tell us why? I can try. Uh, I mean, my stats are that there's 65 now. Uh, Walls, fences. So that's a third of the world's nation states have walled themselves off from their neighbours. Uh, and yeah, of of um, all the walls built since the Second World War, the majority of them this century. So I think it's a counter-argument to uh, globalisation. I'm not saying globalisation hasn't happened. It's blindingly obvious it has. But I try to make the point that globalisation does not equal world unity. They are two very different things. It's happened because technology allows it to happen now, both at the physical sense of being able to construct these vast uh, structures. India, for example, has fenced off the entirety of Bangladesh. It's about 3,000 kilometres or whatever it is. But also the rationale about why it is happening. Modern technology has allowed the mass movement of peoples and the mass communication between the peoples even as they move. And it is the mass movement that has driven these divisions and driven these walls. And the great example is uh, the influx into Europe, Mm -hmm. uh, 2015 being its high point. Of course, that was driven by both poverty and war. I mean, a lot of people are economic migrants. They're not necessarily refugees. And so all this came to a head. 2015 is the sort of template. It came to a head with a mass movement of peoples. Uh, The crash of 2008 meant that an awful lot of Western richer countries were struggling And some of the people in them were struggling and were not too happy about this mass arrival of uh, people from outside of their area. And then this physical ability to to, to actually put the walls up, to construct them. But, of course, you have to have the political will to to do that. And the political will has come with populism reacting to uh, a desire from, let's face it, serious amounts of the electorates. You actually start off the book with a, a very ancient wall, the Great Wall of China. Mm. Um, can you tell us a bit about why that was put up and how it might relate to more modern contemporary moves to do that? It really does re- relate, even though it's so ancient. 
in, in that it is the ultimate symbol of the us and them because you know the Chinese did have a very very strong the, uh, sense of themselves and in particular I'm talking about the Han Chinese who are the majority about ninety percent of Chinese are Han and there was the, the, it is the ultimate symbol of us and them because they had this very very strong feeling that we are civilization we are the middle kingdom the center of the earth everybody outside that are the barbarians outside of the wall was the steppe with the nomads inside the wall were the settled communities who had been settled for a very very long time and here was civilization so the wall went up not just as a physical barrier to the incursions because it wasn't always successful in preventing the incursions into china it also went up as this this idea in the chinese mind of us and everybody else is them and of course let's face it um if you've built a wall well, pretty much anywhere at any time, that's what it's for. Here is us and what we have and outside of it is you. And actually, that I think goes back to the very beginning of the, the idea. Mm. And this is a bit cod philosophy, a bit cod anthropology, and I'm not an expert in either area, but I do believe that, and, and uh, Jared Diamond in Guns, Germs and Steel uh, makes this point as well, once we became relatively sedentary, once we stopped being hunter-gatherers, at that moment, I have something that I need to keep, mm. my crops. Mm. And I've got enough of my crops for one year. I don't know what's going to happen the year after. There could be a flood or a famine and all sorts. And at that point, someone else might want my crops. So, well, I'm going to build a wall around them. And that did start to happen about 12,000 years ago as the first of us stopped hunter-gathering and became sedentary. And at that point, the first walls emerged and they've never really gone down. Mm. If anything, they're simply on a bigger scale, right? Because yeah. you used to have walled cities, yeah. fortresses, and now they're on borders. Yeah, and, and going slightly off a tangent, but Hillary Clinton talked about it takes a village. And, and I agree with her. This is an old African proverb that it takes mm. a village to educate a child. But the, for me, you can widen that concept from the village to the city to the region to the country to the state. Uh, we have become accustomed in the modern world that, that, in a way, the state is the family. You know, we are all part of this family. I mean, the British, for example, are, you know, the Scottish, the Irish, uh, Northern Irish, uh, the Welsh and the English. And we are, even if we're cousins, not necessarily brothers and sisters, we are part of the same family defined by these borders around us and people who are not within them are not part of the family. Mm. If you're a pro-European, they are at least our cousins. Although, personally, I think everyone's my cousin. That's my starting point. Everyone. We are, we're all related. We're Very all cousins. Very John Lennon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Don't> imagine. <laughs> well, you mentioned the Scottish and, and you mentioned Britain. I mean, obviously, there was Hadrian's Wall yeah. um, back in the day, which was... Uh, that was sort of about separating a warring tribe, wasn't it? Stopping an invasion, which is, what I guess, one purpose of a war. You talk about the idea of deterring people from crossing into what's mm. yours. Mm. Um, do these walls work at any, in any of these, uh, for any of these purposes? Oh, yes. And that's an unpopular thing to say because um, – let me give you two examples of things politicians say. One is that walls don't work. Well, it's simply not true in all circumstances. Not all politicians yeah. say that. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, of course, some want them. Especially the ones that are building yeah. them. Yeah. I, I think even if you're a sort of liberal Democrat politician and not a populist, in other words, if you're not Trump, mm. um, I still don't think it's safe to make the argument that walls don't work because they do and can, not in all circumstances. Uh, 
Constantinople walls stood for a thousand years. That's an awful lot of generations that were not invaded. It was attacked many times, but the walls stood and they worked. Uh, Hadrian's Wall, well, the moment the Romans who built it and knew how to build it went home, it took us a, a, a few years before we wrote them a letter and said, could you please come back because mm. we can't sustain this. Uh, you go on to the groans of the Britons when, and that famous thing in history where the Romans wrote back and said, look to your own defences because, you know, they, had, they were busy doing other things. And at that point, yes, the barbaric hordes from your part of the world, Catherine, <laughs> poured across that very artificial border and the wall didn't work. So I've given you two uh, that didn't. Uh, much more contentiously, as it's a modern wall, uh, I think the Israeli wall works. Uh, I'm not making a case that I'm in favour of it or against it. But the logic of it, there were hundreds and hundreds of deaths by suicide bombings coming out of the West Bank in the years running up to the being built. Once it was built, it was in the low dozens, the death rate. That, from the perspective of the Israelis who built the wall, means the wall works. Now, where it doesn't work is uh, Mexico-US. I don't mm. think it ever would, even if it was completed. Uh, and there are other uh, examples. Well, what, why do you... Can you go into that a bit more? Why do you think the Mexico-US border is... One is that, just at an economic level, they are so integrated, Mexico uh, and the USA, through, through NAFTA, but also the economies of the, the United States, states that border it are so dependent on Mexico, you're going to have to keep that traffic open. And once that's open, things can come through. The actual physical wall itself, well, you can get over, round and under things and people will. Mm. Um, but more than anything, it's that it physically is not going to be there. Not only has he not, Mr. Trump, not got the funding for it, and Congress has the purse strings, and they have not opened the purse strings to build it. He even tried to appropriate funds from the Pentagon, thinking he could bypass it. Uh, but the Pentagon funds are also eventually via Congress, and they said, no, you're not going to do it. So that's one reason. Another reason is the treaty between the United States and Mexico that you cannot build in the Rio Grande floodplain. This is a treaty between two sovereign states. The president can't just say, I am going to build there. So you'd have to get that through Congress. And the last being, being simply the terrain. You know, there are parts of the terrain where you physically cannot build into the granite boulders of the mountainous areas. You put all that together and people are going to come through. And anyway, people come through, smuggled through in cars and all sorts of ways. You know, it's going to keep happening. The real way to reduce immigration, should you want to, in the United States is to make sure that the Mexican economy is uh, growing at all times. And, and there is a direct correlation between how many people come and how strong the Mexican, Mexican economy is. Mm. Well, in fact, the, I think the most recent migrants are actually from further yeah. south in, in Latin America right now, aren't they? Because the eco yeah. Mexican economy is doing quite well. But so, so the, the, in a sense, the board is moving. Yeah, well... This, again, is a little bit... Well, it's not even mischievous. It's true, but it doesn't fit some people's narratives. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I am not prisoner of... Uh, I'm not in either family or either camp, uh, liberals or illiberals um, or, or, or Democrats or Republicans or, in this country, Labour Conservative. I'm, I'm not prisoned by that. And so I am not... I don't have a problem with pointing out that just as we should perhaps, because I do think we should criticise uh, many of Mr Trump's policies, but we just seem to turn a blind eye to the fact that Mexico deports more people than mm. the United States does. 
And Mexico's laws are far harsher, harsher than the United States are. Mm. Second, chance, second time you're caught in Mexico, 10 years in jail. The Americans just deport you again. You probably have to do a, a year in one of these awful camps or whatever. But also, look at the, Amer- the Mexican constitution. It clearly says we will not allow immigration if it undermines the cohesion and stability uh, of the something like the ethnic mix. Mm. I mean, basically, they're saying... Uh, we've written into our constitution, we won't have non-Mexicans at a certain point, and it's legal because we wrote... I just wish that people would stop fixating so much on this orange bogeyman (laughs) (laughs) and realise that all this stuff is happening elsewhere as well, and you mustn't just pour your ire onto one person because then you think that the solution to the problem is not to have Trump, and I don't think that is... Hmm. I'm not saying he helps uh, my particular worldview or worldviews, but you know, you, you get Obama deported more Hispanic people than did Bush before him. And they started kicking the doors down under Obama. He reinforced the fence. He used to talk about American jobs for Americans first before anybody, you know, Obama did all that. Mm. So if you just think that this is the only problem, you're not seeing what the problem is. And mm. Trump is not the only problem. One of the things I thought you, that you said that was very interesting in the book was, um, well, of course, not only do you remind us, as you've just said, that that um, all of this was going on before Trump. Um, of course, the wall was uh, got under construction long before he came, yeah. although it stopped in Obama's era when he started looking at technological solutions. But one point I thought you made, which was very interesting, was... Um, that two-thirds of the uh, ground that it might be built on actually is in private hands. Yes. And we know how Americans feel about uh, eminent domain and, yeah. and seizure of private property. Yeah. So uh, do you think this wall will ever be built no, for, for all these reasons? I mean, I've, that- I've forgotten that. So add that to that list about the Treaty of mm. the Rio Grande, uh, the terrain which you can't build on, the fact they haven't got enough money to build it. Yeah, add on to that that an awful lot of it is owned by, by private people. And this is something else that happened under Obama, when he started double and triple reinforcing the bits of the fence that were already built, part of it was because you couldn't build a fence in someone's backyard, which would be many acres. And you had this ridiculous situation where you could walk up to the Mexican border, the US border from the Mexican side, as a massive wall. Oh, right. But just go along a few dozen miles and there'll be a gap. And then you will walk through that. Mm. And then take a right or a left, and further on there might be a bit more of a wall, but there's, then there's another gap, so you walk through that. I mean, it's, it's, it's nuts. The whole idea is nuts, um, but I think it appeals to something very deep psychologically mm. in us. And, that, and I do make the argument that I think all, all he's got to do is build some of the wall, mm. get the immigration figures down, stand in front of the wall, mm-hmm. say mission accomplished... And that will assuage the core vote that uh, believes that something is being done and feels better about it. So it's a slogan. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the wall is a piece of theatre. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, look, it's not in some some places. Um, I mean, don't the American wall is. Uh, you know, there are walls around the world that are not just slogans that are there uh, and partially work. But uh, th- this is a, this is a piece of political theatre, and I think as people have learnt, uh, Mr. Trump may not be the most sophisticated person. You know, he's, he may not have read Machiavelli, 
but I think he would understand Machiavelli. Let's go back to the Israel-Palestine war, which you mentioned before, which is one of the most contentious. Um, I have to agree with you. It has stopped the rights and wrongs of it, notwithstanding. Mm. It has actually stopped the suicide bombing. What is the consequence of it um, beyond that? What is it? How do you think it has changed the conflict or the milieu in which the conflict Mm. sits? Uh, In two ways. Um, There's a certain permeancy to it. There is still this faint hope of a two-state solution and, you know, all the other bits that go with that sentence. But there's something about the wall which could be taken down pretty easily. You know, it's just concrete slabs, get the cranes out and pull them up. It's doable. But the very fact of it feels permanent. It feels that this is it now. There's that and there's this. And, you know, because we're not going to, in the near future... We're not going to get to the situation where you start talking about where the borders would be. You know, we're nowhere near that. So that's one way that it has impacted the possibility of a solution. But the other way, again, is a bit psychological, and that is that the the Israelis um, don't have to think about the issue as much, um, simply because they're not getting killed as much. But when you're behind this wall... You're living in a high-tech society with a, a relatively vibrant economy and a decent standard of living. And if you're not getting killed in large numbers, and they're not, you don't need to focus on the political solution. Your politicians don't need to come up with brand new bright ideas. And so you simply stay behind this high wall, which again, if there's no um, um, impetus from the body politic to have a solution, well, you're not going to reach a solution. So it's it's had that impact as well. It it breeds complacency. Yes. um, Yes, it it is complacency because, you know, it's not going to stop. You are always going to have a relatively inflamed Middle East, although I think that's overstated. I think that the penny has dropped that a lot of the Arabs, certainly the leaders, are more concerned about their own problems than they are about this affair. But it will always be a thorn in the side. And it will always, of course, be a thorn in the side of the Palestinians. And you will always have the issue that you have with with Hamas uh, until you reach a political solution. I was going to say earlier about the things that the politicians say that aren't always true. Uh, (laughs) Which would those be? (laughs) Well, how long have we got? Uh, No, it was the, as, as well as walls don't work, whereas I argue that sometimes they do. Politicians always say there is no military solution to this conflict. Well, that's not true either. That's not what the Russians said to the Germans in 1945 as they rolled into Berlin. You know what? There's no military solution to this. You know, or it's not what the Viet Cong said to, to the Vietnamese government in 1975 when they rolled into Phnom Penh, etc., etc. So there are military solutions to conflicts. I'm not making a case for that whatsoever because, you know, in Syria you could now say, yeah, you know what, I'm on the front foot, we'll just wipe everybody out, whereas I don't think that's a very good idea. Mm. But there are military solutions to conflicts, and it's a bit of a platitude. It's an easy platitude when people say that because they're not really thinking it through. I suppose it depends on the nature of the conflict. If you've yes. got a territorial conflict and you can sort of put a line yeah. down again, back yeah. to walls, um, th- then perhaps there is a military solution. Yeah. Um, back to Israel for a second. Um, I mean, I think my certainly my recent experience of of that conflict has been that. Um, there is a strong because of the uh, the lack of crossover between the lives of um, Israelis and Palestinians, uh, the disconnect between them. Mm-hmm. Um, 
puts people in the mind of, well, just the status quo is working, yeah. uh, if, you're, yeah. if you're Israeli. Yeah. But w- one thing that interests me uh, is, is what, what then goes on in Israel. And you, you, you do reference this in the book, that we're not talking really about walls, um, certainly not physical walls, but the divisions in Jewish-Israeli yeah. society are very great. And growing. And yeah. growing. Yeah. Are they growing because that common foe is is not present and not visible anymore and is behind mm. the wall? Do you think that actually when there is a common foe, people unite more yeah. and that when the foe is yeah. st- stuck behind a wall, you turn on each other? I agree with your latter point. In fact, I make a mild joke that um, bring it on Mars because the moment that Mars attacks – Humanity will unite because we will be us and they will be them. And that is what would unite us. I mean, it's a flippant remark, but I think there's some truth in it. Um, I'm not quite as convinced the way you put it inside Israel, because I think the religious secular divides in Israeli society were already widening and will continue to widen. That was that was happening anyway and, and will continue. The political divides, though, are growing again. Um, I mean, we, we've seen it recently with the, the, the new national law. You've seen massive demonstrations in Tel Aviv by uh, Israel's Druze community mm-hmm. because they feel themselves to be downgraded. Who are Arabs? Yeah, so are, yeah, I mean, okay, I've got away from the, the, the Jewish divisions, but mm. yeah, divisions in Israeli society have grown and, and the discourse amongst the Arabic parties uh, vis-a-vis the body politic is also widening. But yeah, within Israeli society, the secular and the religious, but also the nationalists and the, and the liberals, and the liberals are a shrinking minority now in uh, Israel, uh, hence this new national law uh, went, went through. And yes, I think it, that aspect of it is because you, do, you no longer have to have this solid national front against this, this, this what is uh, in essence an existential threat, because at the moment there isn't an existential threat to Israel. So consequently, you turn back in and into your own divisions. Great. Okay, we're going to take a break now. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Welcome back. Now, Tim, this book is born of many, many years of your oh, uh, yes. work as a foreign correspondent. I'd just like to ask you, what, what's your first personal experience of walls? I, you, you talk about being in Paris when the Berlin Wall came down. Yeah. Is that sort of your earliest idea or memory of there being this kind of division between peoples? No, it's, it's, it, it's connected to that, but it's way beyond it, way before it. And that is that growing up as a child in the Cold War, and you will have had this as well. I've got a couple of years on you, but you'll have had this as well. This, this, this strange land over there, 
you know, I mean, it was when you're a kid, you know, you're 10 or whatever, or 12, you know, you don't know any details. And you can't philosophize that we're all the same under the skin and all the rest of it. They're just kind of these odd people behind this iron curtain. I mean, what mm. a fantastic metaphor. Well, parts of it were iron. Um, and so I, I remember growing up as a kid with a very strong uh, sense of the other over there in this strange land and system and people that they were. Uh, and that, that, that carried on. I went to East Berlin during the, uh, during the Cold War in, the, in one of the military trains that used to go through the corridor. And again, that was, that was quite an experience. Yeah, and then you, then you fast forward and I was a correspondent in Paris and desperately disappointed not to be in Berlin. <laughs> but yeah, the following day... Um, I'm on the Champs-Élysées late afternoon and this Trabant came sputtering up the Champs-Élysées, belching out black smoke. And everyone immediately recognised what had happened. These guys, well, two, 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 two men, two women, young, early 20s, I think they were, in this Trabant sputtering up the Champs-Élysées. And people just spontaneously applauded all the way up the road. People just started applauding them because they realised they'd got in their car, driven through the Berlin Wall, driven through the night, driven through the day to get to the City of Light. Uh, there, was, there was something quite, um, quite magical uh, about it. Not so much the Trabant, um, <laughs> but that made it. Do they still exist? No, no, they 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 are now collectors. <laughs> items but that you know that so that was early days but i'm afraid after that when i started doing more and more conflict reporting you know the divides became ever more apparent mm. and and more of them yeah yeah it's um it's a strange thing isn't it i mean I, I talk about i mentioned thomas friedman's book the world is flat which is 2005 and a very strong argument that globalization had flattened the world so there weren't the mountains and the, the divisions between us that we were all connected um, and it seemed like a good idea even then, although I think it was already out of date after 9-11. Um, you know, I, I do take the, um, unfortunately, the Class of Civilizations book, Huntington's book, I think was somewhat more on the money than Francis Fukuyama's mm. history book. <laughs> yes, that has yeah. not aged well, um, the end of history. Um well, that's interesting you say that. I mean, in terms of globalisation, we, we do have a globalised economy, like it or not. Um, you know, uh, and I do America, like it, actually. I, I do like it. I do. think it works. Mm -hmm. I understand the divisions it's just caused. I understand how a steel worker in Pittsburgh is thinking, hang on, it's not working for me. I understand the Brexit vote here. People uh, who, if they voted on economic and nationalistic, uh, national economy lines, that I want jobs brought back. I understand all that because it hasn't worked for everybody. But in the round... Um, in a Bentham way, I think it has helped more people than it's harmed. And I think it has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. And um, uh, I think for all its ills, uh, it's good. Sorry, but I interrupted you about globalisation. No, I mean, it's, it's there. It's a fact. Um, the economy is globalised, like it or not. Um, America sneezes, the world catches the cold, all of that. Um, culture is increasingly globalised. Walking from the tube down the street, I must have passed well, how many different cuisines? I mean, obviously it's well, London. Yes, it's I'm looking at a chap in our recording studio from Lithuania, who <laughs> is my cousin, my European cousin. So there's that. But, but we still have, and in fact increasingly in this nationalist backlash, we have national politics. Tribes. How can you, know, they, how you, can you, you have how can you have national politics when you have when everything else is globalized? 
because the tribes will not become are not becoming less tribal. I think they are as tribal as they ever were. I hesitate to say more tribal, although we are going through a spasm of nationalisms. I mean, you see it everywhere. It's tribalism. I mean, we have to accept that's what we are. You can try and mitigate against it, but if your starting position is that we're all lovely one people, you're not going to see the problems that are, are apparent everywhere. Um, I mean, again, it's cod anthropology, cod philosophy, but I reference in the book um, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, the Dawn of Man segment at the beginning where the one proto-ape man person wants the watering hole and won't share it with the other, you know, and I, I, when I go, I, mean, I give talks in schools and I say, who thinks we've come a lot much further than that now, because, you know, they batter each other for the water, and, oh yes, of course we've come much further, how come we threw nuclear weapons at each other then in the last century? You know, it's, it's challenging. Um, so the, the globalization, you're absolutely right. Let me try and give you another analogy because it's difficult stuff and I'm, I've always struggled to articulate this. I remember being struck, uh, one of my first visits to Israel as a correspondent, going into Mir Sharim, the, mm, the ultra-orthodox. Ultra, ultra, ultra they yeah. are the, uh, the ultras. And the guy, because I wasn't familiar with this culture, a guy with a black hat and the ringlets and, you know, the full Polish 16th century gear on a mobile phone. And this was in the very early days of mobile phone. And I was just struck by this 20th, possibly, must be, yeah, 20th century technology and this 16th century garb. Because he's using 20, 21st century technology, but a lot of his mindset is what I would regard as pretty old. Regards to, say, sexuality, women... Uh, homosexuality, etc., etc., people that are not in your tribe. And so I, it was a quite a moment. I thought, yeah, you know what? There's no connection between this modernity, this, mm. th- th- this techni- technology. And I think it's partially the same with globalization. Because if I press a button and a woman in Shanghai sticks something in a box and I open it three days later, I'm no closer to her than I used to be just because there's a trade link that, you know. And expanding from that not necessarily with a direct relation, but the European tribes, uh, the intellectuals got ahead of themselves and too quickly told them that they were no longer tribes and they were all, one, well, you want a European tribe. Mm. Way, way too quickly. And you've got people like Juncker saying that national borders are the worst thing that ever existed. Now, I know what he might mean by that because it wouldn't be lovely if there were no national borders. Well, actually, no, I don't think it would be. Uh, if you're in Venezuela now and you're being hunted by the uh, government and you manage to make it across a border into Colombia, you're damn glad there is a border there because they can't come and get you anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I've really digressed. Let me come back to the point I was going to try and make, which was then, they, then the intellectuals got a shock in uh, various elections, Brexit being one of the big ones. But you can write that off if you want as little Englanders, which I think is a disgraceful insult. Uh, on, on ordinary people. And if you think that way and you think that Brexiteers are racist, you're part of the problem that caused this in the first place. Let's move on to the French election, where the National Front, National League, I think she's changed their name to. The narrative was, Catherine, that the plucky French in their great liberal laissez manner have pushed back against the rise of fascism. She got 34% against Macron. But it was spun that the French had stood up against fascism. But her dad got 17% when he stood against Chirac. So she has doubled the, the essentially fascist vote. 
And people call that pushing back against fascism. It's not. It's tribalism, which is partly what fascism is about, rising. Uh, Dutch, same thing. Increased vote, increased mm. share uh, of seats. It's happening right throughout Scandinavia. Uh, uh, the extreme right, which, which I think they are, I'm not, I wouldn't say fascist, but in Sweden, are poised to become the biggest party. Move on to the German elections and 93 AFD members get elected. Direct relation back to, 90, uh, to 2015 and the mass movement of peoples. Tribalism comes to the fore. Hungary, a man who says, I want an illiberal democracy, uh, is elected for the third time, I think, uh, mm -hmm. this spring. Five Star have some very strange ideas, <laughs> very strange ideas, as does the League, are in government in Italy, Slovenia, the right on the rise, Austria, etc., etc. The European tribes have not been diluted, despite this globalisation. Mm. And yet you have, although her um, position is looking more tenuous than ever, you have Angela Merkel, who was a product yeah. of East Germany. Yeah. Um, she did recently say, I have lived behind walls, I have no desire to go back, when talking about yeah. stopping migration into Germany. Um, is she just fighting against an inevitable tide of tribalism? That uh, is her mindset... Uh, well, yeah, I, from the old days, and can it can it survive? I think it's her innate goodness and her experience of living behind a wall mm. that led her to say Willkommen. I also think that was a mistake. Mm. Uh, mm. You know, it's a magnet. They can be both. Yes. Yeah. Um, this is. I'm not against immigration at all. I'm well aware of, of the requirements uh, of the Western industrialized countries. But to say Willkommen and to pull more people across those dangerous crossings, I think, is a mistake. And it's a mistake that has led to the rise of the far right um, in Germany and elsewhere. It hasn't done anything to solve the problems of the areas where they're coming from, uh, which is the real solution to these problems. So it is in, I think two things are inevitable. And this is where, I, you know, I tell you what, I didn't enjoy writing this book that much. And there's not oh. as many jokes in it as there. I, I might just slip <laughs> jokes into most of my books, but and there's, there's rather fewer here. Because walls are a serious matter? Well, look, I wrote about prisons of geography, which was a serious matter about geography as a determining factor in what happens in the world uh, of politics. But um, there was loads of jokes in there. And I wrote about flags and nationalism. There's masses of jokes that I slipped in. But this one, I just couldn't um, because... Two things are inevitable. One is the continuing mass movement of peoples. It's just not going to stop. Why would it? Um, there's a billion people in Africa. By another 40, 50 years, there's going to be two billion. Now, people keep telling me that every decade is Africa's decade and it's on the rise. Well, parts of it, yes, but massive parts of it, no. And of that one billion extra, X percent are going to move. I would if I was them. So well, they're going to move north. Towards us, so I think that's inev absolutely inevitable. And I'm not, you know, I'm not decrying this movement. I'm just saying it's going to happen, mm -hmm. and it's going to run into a population uh, which is uncomfortable at the rate and pace of change. And then we're going to add on to this uh, technology. And what happens when peak migration hits peak technology of automation, and the jobs are disappearing? which we're told by the experts will happen. Now, I'm convinced other jobs will be created, mm. but nowhere near... But those low-skilled jobs yes, will go. Yes, and no, nowhere near to the level required. You know, society will change into whatever it's going to change into. So those things are inevitable. So there's not much point in saying Willkommen. Um There is a point uh, for putting up some fences, but then you run into the problem of being heartless, 
what about these people that are genuinely fleeing? But I, I do take a tougher line when it comes to economic migration, mm. much tougher line. Mm. Refugees is a very different thing. Um, oh, by the, as I've gone completely off piste, I was in France over the weekend, uh, uh, a wedding. A um, friend of uh, mine's son married a French-Cambodian um, woman, lo- lovely couple, and it was great to see the French-Cambodians and the, the French... Um, I was going to say Anglo-Saxons, but that wouldn't be right, uh, mixing together. She's a teacher, the woman, and she was telling me how nearly every single person in the class that she teaches, which is made up primarily of people that have arrived in the last few years, Mm. their birthdays are all in December, and they're all in December of a certain year that makes them all 17 or 16 when they arrived. And her entire experience of everyone that's ever arrived, because she says these guys are clearly in their early 20s or mid-20s, but their birthday and you can't prove it. So I, I, that's an aside to try and explain that economic m- migrants is not uncontrolled. Uh, movement of peoples is not healthy for the countries that people are moving to. And it's not healthy for the people that the countries that they're moving from. I'll try and spin this argument together uh-huh. into a co- coherent whole now. I... Admire people like Rhys Jones, professor of uh, in Hawaii University, who is argues for no borders when there is a no border yep. movement. I understand that, and I think it comes from a good place, but I think it's crazy. Um, they openly admitted the open borders movement that if if tomorrow every border in the world has gone down, there can be complete movement. They estimate I don't know how you work it out. One hundred and thirty million people would move to America within about 10 years. Mm. About 30 million people would move to the United Kingdom within about 10 years. And they accept this, and they accept that there would be a levelling down uh, of our living standards in the Western world, but such a massive levelling up Up, for people that come here Mm -hmm. that therefore the moral argument is made. And I understand this moral argument, except eventually you're going to come to a country run by fascists (laughs) with a very aggressive army, uh, and it's going to be like France was with the Algerians in the early 1960s, but worse so I really don't think that's a very good idea. And, but, you know, but making this argument, people can say you're heartless. Well, what about all the countries that people are coming from? Mm. It's all young men and the educated and the better off. You're going to leave behind countries where the hospitals are full of older people, no one to take care of them, no future for young people. This, this is not the answer to the reason why walls are going up. The answer in a very broad brush and I agree, perhaps, too simple way. If you do not move much more of the money to where most of the people are, many of those people will move to where the money is. So it's a plea to increase our foreign aid budgets, Mm -hmm. to have some sort of Marshall Plan for the developing world, which, again, would be very, very difficult. But that big idea, you know, I, I couldn't do it. I'm not an economist or a politician. But that big idea, I think, needs to have more of a foothold for, you know, because most people in most countries don't like the foreign aid budget. They think, oh, it should be spent at home. I'm saying for the better of everybody, we need to do an awful lot more out there. So suddenly I'm in the touchy-feely camp. <laughs> <laughs> so wars are a temporary solution to, to movement. You have to improve life in the places where people come from. Um, yeah. I mean, climate change could be a huge oh, yeah, yeah. problem where that's... Because some of the places you're talking about, no matter what development yeah. projects you push into them, they're not going to be habitable yeah. in a I few perhaps, decades' time. I think I'm, I should perhaps have written a little bit more about that. I mean, I, I mention it several times, but more or less... Uh, in, in passing. You're right, the, the desertification of parts of uh, just underneath the Sahel and Sahara Sahara, will move people. Um, Mauritius, there's not that many people there, but uh, you know the islands that may go under, 
I noticed that the Bangladeshis are busy moving the Rohingya to an island that floods every mm. year. Um, on a bigger scale, a better example is Bangladesh, which floods every year, you know, the bottom third of it. If that continues to rise and goes further and further, the Bangladeshis will move in two directions. One, outwards into the world, which to an extent people do anyway. But also, this century, about 15 million Bangladeshis have moved to the border states into India, places like Assam. And there's a lot of rioting going on in Assam at the moment, a lot of ethnic tensions, because the equilibrium of the demographics has been completely changed with this mass movement of Bangladeshis into India. If you're forced further up north into Bangladesh to get away from the rising waters, eventually you're going to spill over that fence again. And that will cause massive problems and frictions in India. Now, India's response to this is to build this massive fence with watchtowers and razor wire and machine guns. People still get through it. And they shoot people. Uh, They do shoot people. Um, Yeah. Well, you mentioned mentioned the Sahel and the Sahara there in Africa. Um, In your book, you write about the Western Sahara being one of the, possibly the few examples of a wall that actually goes through a nation, yeah. uh, the Sahrawi people, uh, rather than separating two nations of people, two tribes. Um, and the same is true of um, some Native American tribes in on the US-Mexican border. Can you speak to those kind of divisions where they perhaps don't have popular support and in fact are... I mean, this is an issue with borders all over Africa, of course, because mm. those are not nation states in the European sense. Mm. They are colonial creations. Yeah. So so what what's the problem when you put up a border or a wall right between a, a nation of people, a tribe? What, like Belfast? Indeed. <laughs> some of which were put up by uh, the communities themselves. And, they, and some in the community want them to stay there because they don't feel safe because they're not there yet. They haven't arrived at this place that you know everybody has to work towards where communities live completely side by side, um, which, is, of course, is the same everywhere else. Yeah, the Sahara one is, is interesting. Um, just to be mischievous, I would argue that when the Spanish colonialists left Morocco, the Moroccan colonialists immediately nicked the bottom <laughs> half of that area, which was not uh, indigenous. Indigenous people are not Moroccan, pure Arab speakers. Uh, they ended up forming the Polisario Front to to fight Morocco, and Morocco's response was to build this massive, massive sand wall with landmines each side of it. Does it split a nation? I'm not convinced that they... uh, I think they are two nations within one state. Uh, Elsewhere, well, on the American border, yeah, you're right, there's Native American tribes uh, or peoples who have always uh, been connected to people over what is they never regarded as a border, of course, which is now one. Uh, and they, they, they find it very difficult for that to continue. But that's a story that happened throughout uh, the world because of colonialism. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's people in Iraq and Syria that for hundreds and hundreds of years thought to themselves, um, oh, you know, my, my cousin's going over there to 200 miles away to marry that person because we're you know they're from the same tribe mm. uh, same language same history same cultures family connections and suddenly some bloke from europe comes along and says you live in this country and you live in that country and you think what so that that has been a problem I, I, and we're seeing some of the issues that have arisen from that in the current conflicts uh, africa as well africa uh, there's lots of small independence movements that people don't know about where there are divisions because the, the book, you know, the, the book uses walls as the sort of narrative, but mm-hmm. it's about the, all the divisions. other divisions. 
Uh, I'm trying to think of examples. Um, Nigeria with Biafra. Mm-hmm. Um, Nigeria also in the bottom right-hand corner next to Cameroon. Each side of it, they speak English, and each side of it, they have a connection. And there are some of them who would rather have a mini statelet and have nothing to do with Cameroon and Nigeria. Uh, there is a Mombasa independence movement. There's a Zanzibar independence movement, etc., etc. Because we came along and told all these nations, you are now a state. And they are making a decent fist of it. Well, we have the South Sudan um, secession, which is the world's most... Well. Has not gone well. Um, some of the celebrity backers of that particular movement are probably looking in some horror at it. Mm. Back to the Great Wall of China, where the book begins. Uh, it's now an incredible tourist mm. attraction. It's kind of amazing to go to. I've, we've both been. Most walls aren't like that. And God, no. I, I don't know if you feel this way, but... I was thinking as I read the book that most walls I've ever seen of this kind make me really sad. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Well, look, I assume you've been to Gaza. Yeah, I have. That trip through the wall at Gaza and through those metal fences and then through the metal turnstiles and then emerging into no man's land. Hmm. Well, it's actually Gazan land, but there's about a kilometre of it. With the, with the cage on yeah. either side, which and you walked down. And then you stumble yeah. across into this dust, dirty scrubland and then after, what, several hundred yards of open ground, you're finally met by someone from Hamas. Uh, it's a, such a depressing experience because of all the things that it says. Another one, and this is mentioned in the book, this, is this phenomenon of these mini walls going up all over, well, all over the world, and that's the breeze blocks, the, uh, the blast walls. Baghdad. Baghdad being the greatest example, the green zone. But you see and, it, you, Well, not just the green zone, I mean, all the yeah. neighbourhoods. Yes, the neighbourhoods walled off from each other. Profoundly depressing. I mean, they are also ugly as well. But it's the only thing that pacified the city. Yeah, which the is balkanization. You, you can make an argument for it. If you cannot, and it's mostly the, the people in charge, if they cannot... If they don't have the power to make sure that people don't fall upon one another, you have to keep them apart. You know, it's, it's, it's a divorce, and divorces can be very messy. Yeah, you and I go to these places, and we see these walls. Yeah. And well, they, I don't uh, anymore. I've had enough of it. And they, <laughs> they're heartbreaking just to see. Yeah. Is that because we see walls as a failure of humanity? Yes. Oh, God, Absolutely. Because they are. They are a failure of humanity. They are proof that we are still at a certain level, that we have not learned to share enough. I mean, that's exactly why we put them up. And I go back to that original point I made 12,000 years ago, not in this interview. It just seems that long. Um, (laughs) 12,000 years ago. We're nearly there, Tim. I've got this corn, but I don't trust you not to come and get it because your corn might not have worked and you're starving to death. But I know I've only got enough for six months. And if if I share it with you, you know, we haven't learned. What we have now and to take it even further back to the proto-apes bashing each other in 2001 A Space Odyssey, they had no way of rising above that. 12,000 years ago, yeah, we had emerged into concepts. We are now at a place, despite having thrown nuclear weapons at each other, where we absolutely not only understand the concepts of sharing and it being better for everybody, as we teach all our kids to share because we know it's the right thing to do. So we're, we're there in our heads. The technology is there to have enough food for everybody and probably better standards of living, although that would require quite a lot of work. And that's the missing bit. Mm. It's this, it's this, I'm not saying we will necessarily leap forward into a wonderful future. You know, I'm not sure the history is linear. But what's different now is absolutely the capacity to understand and want that and the technology to deliver that. 
what you then have to do is get political systems into place where it's delivered and that's when it gets complicated because that's when we come back to tribalism and I've got this and I don't want you to have it. Now, the Berlin Wall possibly very differently, uniquely perhaps, uh, from, w- was a wall of ideology rather than tribalism. Um, and you, yeah. you talked about those um, East Berliners arriving in, in Paris <laughs> in that moment. And who can forget, even if they weren't alive at the time, if they've ever seen those uh, television pictures of that wall coming down and the joy mm. and the flags waving and stuff. Do you think we'll ever see a wall come down with such unalloyed oh, this joy. Is your, this is your way of ending on a negative note, isn't it? Typical <laughs> journalist. This is why I gave up your... No, you could say yes. Yes, there will be. Yeah, uh, well, OK. Long term, of course. Uh, long term, you have to have hope. Long term, you think that um, we will find solutions. And even Israel-Palestine. I mean, you, we, we could both solve it right here, right now, because we both know, just like they both know, how to, what, do, it. How to do it, what the final uh, borders look like, the divisions. We, we all know how to do it. It's just getting there. So, yes, one day. But in the near future, I'm afraid, like I said, because of the, the European politics I mentioned, but it's not just – this is not a European phenomenon. This is a global phenomenon with uh, Duterte in the Philippines, Trump in America, um, Xi to an extent in China, who is the strongman personified, etc., etc. We are in this era of rising nationalism, rising divisions – whether it's in social media or, or whatever, while simultaneously this era of globalization, but it's it's a real state of flux which is shown in our politics. It's what's disrupted them and made things more divided than they used to be. And I'm afraid in the near to middling term, whatever that means, that's where we are. We are in this really difficult period. Whether it's ten years or twenty years, I don't know. But I do know that it is very human to hope. Uh, and believe, and I hope and believe that, that you know the future is brighter. Because I've just finished um, Stephen Pinker's uh, Enlightenment Now book. Um, he's right. If you look at the standard of living now for most people and the way we behave and what we have, and you turn on a tap and water comes out, it is an age of miracles. There's never been a better time to be alive, and I don't see why that sh- can't keep going in that direction. Um, we are, we do live better. Than, most of us live better than we've ever lived. And so, yeah, hope, belief. Bring it on. Tim, thank you very much. Thank you. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. <laughs>